At Keeley Companies, culture sets them apart. They are dedicated to the safety, the well-being, and the career growth of every employee, which they refer to affectionately as the Keelians. Recently, they launched a new cultural pillar called Keeley One, focusing on diversity and inclusion. Senior Project Manager Henry Isaacs says that understanding everyone is unique and different is critical. We have to recognize our individual differences and that everyone deserves to be included and have their voice heard. For Keeley, this focus on diversity and inclusion has been a huge morale booster. It makes people more excited to come into work, which correlates to greater retention and enhances their overall culture. Now, when establishing your culture of diversity and inclusion, Henry has some great advice for us. Have an open mind and be willing to step out of our comfort zone. That's number one. Number two, take the time to truly learn, to seek wisdom around different cultures, different races, and different religions. Do the work, in other words. And then thirdly, reach out to someone different from you and be intentional in having an open and honest conversation with them. End the sentences with question marks. It's great advice from Henry, and I want to thank my friends from Keeley Companies for being proud sponsors, partners, and super fans of the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. With the 2020 Olympics in full swing in the midst of 2021, that's right, we got a little bit of a delay on this Olympics, but it's happening, people. I promise you, the Olympics is on full tilt. We thought we would utilize this week's episode to celebrate one of the greatest Olympic champions of all time. So before we celebrate her, and I think you're going to remember her as soon as I drop her name here in a moment, let's give a little bit of context to this. Jack O'Leary is my son. He's going to start his sophomore year in high school here shortly. And he was sharing with me just two days ago that a classmate of his from high school is competing in the Olympics. He's a 17-year-old swimmer. He is a senior in high school, this kid. It turns out, my friends, that swimming, in fact, most sports, are left best to the young people. Us older folks, whether we are you know, way older in our 20s or 30s, or if you're like me, in your 40s, well, it becomes impossible at that point to compete at a high level. Which makes what our guest today did over the last several decades, the accomplishments in the pool and beyond, all the more remarkable. You may remember the very first time you saw Dara Torres swim in the Olympics. It wasn't recently, though. It was way back in Los Angeles, her hometown, back in 1984. She was successful, along with her teammates back then, was successful four years later, and again four years after that. At that point, she was referred to by her teammates lovingly as Grandma. She was known as Grandma on the team because she was the ripe age of 25 years of age. It was time for her, they thought, to hang this suit up and to leave the pool area for the younger kids. So she did for eight years. 
before returning successfully and then retiring, hanging the suit up, which she did for eight more years before returning one final time successfully. This story you're gonna hear today is about a woman who's become incredibly successful, not only in the pool, but in life by not listening to the voices of those around her saying that you can't do this. The thing you thought you wanted is impossible. My friends, as you listen to this story today, my encouragement is to buckle up, get ready for a wild ride with a really remarkable lady. I think you're gonna fall in love with her story and her heart. You're gonna love the fact that, yes, yeah, she could celebrate the accomplishments. She could celebrate the numerous bronze and silver and gold medals. But what you'll hear, I think, most importantly today is, yeah, the dedication required to become successful. That's a prerequisite. But she continually showers her teammates, those who helped guide her toward that success as the reason why she became the success that she did. My friends, I'd like to introduce you to my friend and now yours. Her name is Dara Torres. Dara, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. <laughs> it is great to have you here. As uh, you know, the listeners just heard a moment ago, I spent an awful lot of the opening bragging about your past, bragging about some of those accomplishments, some of those medals that you have hanging up around. But if I met you in a grocery store and our cart just, oh, we just, we bumped into each other and you look familiar. And I said, Dara, my name's John O'Leary. And I told you a little bit about me. What do you do, Dara? What, how do you respond to that these days? I just start chatting. I'm a very type A personality, so I'm outgoing. I'm not super shy. I actually really love to meet people and talk to people. And, you know, when I get stopped, I always try to make the time and, and talk to someone. I like to give back. And to me, like chatting with people who have maybe seen you or are a fan or just enjoy what you've done, then, you know, I don't know why it's so difficult to just give someone some time and talk to them. People on earth are created equal and no one's better than anyone else. So, you know, it's just, it's something I love to do is chit chat with people. So let's go from chit chatting to people in the grocery store today, all the way back through your incredible illustrious career to the beginning. So when did you first recognize that you were not only gifted in the water, but you had a passion for being in the water, being in, in the lane? I'm pretty sure I fell in love with the water well before I was on a swim team. We had a pool in our backyard, which I was in all the time. We used to go out to Long Island. We had a house out there. We'd go all summer and be either in the bay or on the beach and just always in the water. So I, I definitely had a, a love relationship uh, with water. Um, when I got on a swim team and, and made the team and started to swim in swim meets, I really fell in love with the sport, but I would say I was probably like around 12 years old when I really thought, okay, you know, maybe I can be something here in swimming or, or maybe break a record one day or maybe make the Olympic team one day. So it was probably when I was about 12 years old and I went to my first Y nationals. And to me, that was like a huge meet and it was in Fort Lauderdale and we traveled there, which the most traveling would ever do is like on a bus somewhere, you know? So this was kind of fun to take a, a flight and um, it just, I don't know, something just clicked with me. And I just, I love, I've loved it since I was a little kid. Your first Olympics, and I hate to do this to you, but this is going to uh, this is going to age you a little yeah, bit. Yeah, a little so, bit. Yeah, I know. Children, pull your chairs up close to your radios right now. You're <laughs> going to hear a little bit more about Dara Torres. Dara, your first Olympics was way back, lady, way back in 1984, Los Angeles. You were a 17 year old baby. Talk, talk about what you remember most about those Olympics. 
I was really just this sort of punk kid bouncing off the walls. Like I, I was in awe of everyone else who was there. I mean, even Ronald Reagan came and spoke to the whole U.S. contingency. And when he was finishing up, I just jumped on the stage, not even knowing what Secret Service men were as they put their hands in their pocket. And I'm like, hey, hey, President, can I have a picture with you? He's like, sure. And I get a picture with Reagan. So I was just kind of taking in all of like the celebrity of it and just the coolness of being at the Olympic Games and sort of not really focusing on what I needed to do. And so when I swam my first race in the preliminaries of the relay, there, I swam so poorly, there was actual talk about taking me off the team in the finals and having someone else take my place because I, I really didn't swim well. So I kind of had to sort of refocus and realize why I'm there and that I'm an Olympian too, not just ooing and aahing over everyone else. My understanding is you, you know, most swim meets for those of us who have kids who are in, in these types of events, <laughs> it's normally packed with like 42 to 50 people in, in the auditorium. That's what you got used to. And you pull back the curtain and you don't see 42 to 50 people. You saw 17,000 or so in this massive auditorium and you kind of lost it in that first race. And, and they, you almost got booted to the sideline for the second race. And there was a woman named Jill who would have taken your space. She would have, she would have swam for you instead of kind of pushing into the sideline. Would you share the story of what she chose to do instead? First of all, kudos to you for doing your homework and knowing that story. But yeah, so Jill Sturkle was someone who I always looked up to as an athlete. Um, she held the world record in my best event, which was a 50 freestyle. And then I sort of took her down when I was 14 and, and beat her at the nationals and won my first national title there. So she had every right to be like, who is this kid who's going to take over, you know, my event and stuff. And so when I made the Olympic team and she made the Olympic team, we made it in the same event, which was the hundred freestyle. You know, they only take to the top two in each event, unless you're swimming a relay. And one of the relays would be the 400 freestyle relay. So instead of taking the top four, they take the top six. So they had two alternates and I had gotten fourth and Jill had gotten fifth in, in the hundred freestyle back then. The 50 freestyle wasn't an Olympic event, so they didn't have it at trials. You know, I'd made the team. I was happy. And yeah, I didn't swim well in the morning. I, I remember I, I went to watch a guy that I had a crush on, Rowdy Gaines. He was in the event before me or a couple events before me. And when I pulled the, there's tents going around the whole entire pool. And I hadn't really seen because this, this is my only race. And so I hadn't been out there. And you're not allowed on the deck unless you're swimming that heat at that moment. And so I hadn't really like understood what the, perception of of how big a deal this was until I pulled that that tent up to watch Rowdy swim and saw thousands of thousands of people in the crowd and it's like you said I mean maybe 200 people I mean 40 is kind of up but maybe 200 people and it usually was your friends and family and teammates and that was it so I was a little bit in shock to say the least when when I saw that crowd I think that really affected me so when I got done with my race and there was talk about replacing me with Jill Sturkel who had made the 1980 Olympic team, didn't compete though because of the boycott, but was super young and, and was on a relay in 1976 and won the only gold medal for women um, on this relay. And so she had the experience and she just, and whether she knew she was doing this or not, I think she saw I was kind of distraught. Um, she sort of took me under her wing. Uh, we started watching soap operas. I'd never seen a soap opera in my life. So we started watching soap operas on TV. We did a, like a U.S. puzzle. Like I think it was like a, lump, uh, a flag, an American flag or something. And just really kept my mind off the thought that I may not be able to swim the finals at night. And I had family and, you know, friends coming to watch me swim because it was in L.A. where I grew up. And so in retrospect, looking back, she really 
was very sportsmanlike and I really have admired her for that among other things that she had done, you know, at different swim meets that we had been to and stuff. She's just really um, a good person. Well, you and your teammates swam incredibly well that evening. You end up winning the gold. Would you just kind of slowly walk us through what it's like as a 17 year old girl in her own backyard in an Olympics held in her own country, standing up on the podium on the, the top step of that podium, bending down getting the gold medal put over her neck and then watching the flag elevate and the national anthem play? What, what, is, what is that experience like? It, it's really indescribable and it's hard to explain to someone who hasn't been in that position of training their whole life for that one moment to, to try to win that gold medal, winning that gold medal, like you said, getting the, the medal put around your neck, you know, crossing your hand over your heart and the flag rising as they're playing the national anthem. Um, it's a really indescribable moment and you, you can't describe it unless you're in that position, but it, it's heart racing, thrilling, adrenaline filled for like days of just, you know, bouncing off the walls, you know, knowing that you won a gold medal on the world's biggest stage. So it really was pretty incredible. But I honestly think that I enjoyed it much more, even though it wasn't a gold, um, winning a medal in 2008, because I could really appreciate it more, you know, as I was got older. So I'm, I'm curious, once you step off of that podium and the national anthem stops playing in the background, you're this little blonde kid that has to go back to being a high school kid. Yeah. How do you return to any kind of normal life when you've had such a global platform at such a young age? I, I don't know if people actually knew I was going for the Olympics because the high school that I had started in middle school, it was middle school, high school, and it was an all girls private school. I left my junior year to go move to Mission Viejo and train with the top team in the country. And so I kind of just left and, and it's not like I had a ton of friends there because I was so athletic and the girls were so girly. And so it was kind of not like, not a good mesh <laughs> with us, but I mean, I had some friends and my closest friends kind of knew, and I don't know if they knew I was actually going to make it or what, but they just knew I was gone for a year. And so a couple of days before school started after winning, you know, the medal, we had to go get our books. And so I, I, I went to the school, the headmaster saw me and stopped me. He said, Hey, Derry, congratulations. Blah, blah, blah. He said, but I'd love to see your medal. And I said, okay. I said, tell you what, I'll bring it the first day of school, but you have to promise me you're not going to show anyone or walk around with it or anything like that. I know you have a safe in your office. Just keep it in there. And I'll get it at the end of the day. He's like, all right, sure. No problem. And so went to school, reaching first and second period, the loudspeaker goes and said, we have a, an assembly on the big lawn. And I'm like, God, what's this about? And literally he just pulls it out and he's wearing it and he wants, he has me come up and he wants to put it around my neck. And I was literally mortified because I kind of just wanted to stand on the radar. Yeah, I did my thing and let me finish my senior year in high school and go off to college. And after he did that, and I know he meant well, but I feel like people were looking at me a little bit differently than they were before. Cause all of a sudden I had all these friends that I never had for that. So most of my friends were in swimming, not in school. Well, you leave that school, you leave that coast, you head to the exact opposite coast, you go to the University of Florida and have an incredibly successful college career. I have down 28 All-American swimming honors, the most you could possibly get. And so life from the outside looks as shimmery, perfect as it possibly could. But in getting to know your story, that's not exactly how you felt on the inside. When I got to college, you know, I was expecting my, my college trip was during a period when the swimmers were tapering, meaning they 
had NCAs coming up and they weren't swimming as much. And, you know, I was always scared to go to a college that was too difficult. Like I was a pure sprinter and, and I, and I, I knew if I went to a college that, you know, really pounded the yardage, it wouldn't be good for me. And so when I went on my, my trip to look at university of Florida, I was like, Oh, you know, this is, this is, I can handle this, you know, this is, doesn't look that bad and it's a beautiful campus and you know, whatnot. And so um, when I, when I got to college, I'll never forget, like it's a small town Gainesville. And back then they didn't have real gates. Yeah. They pulled up a uh, stairs to the plane and then you had to walk down the stairs right. and it was so hot. It was in August in, in, in central Florida. And my mom started laughing. She's like, have fun here for four years. I'm like, oh my gosh. And then like torrential rainstorms. And then, you know, going to dinner with, with, or to a bar with a bunch of the other swimmers and hearing these horror stories about the coach and how hard he is. And I'm like, oh, you guys are just hazing us. It's not going to be that hard. And, and first day of practice, the coach, you know, throwing a chair across the deck. I'm like, oh my gosh. And so, you know, that coupled with being so far away from home, growing up in LA and, and being in Gainesville, Florida, to developing an eating disorder because we got weighed a lot and I wanted to make weight and I didn't want to do extra workouts because I was so exhausted as it was anyway. It was sort of a dark time in my life uh, going to college and having to readjust to a, a different life, a lot different than what I was used to. And the college was great. Like I loved University of Florida. It was just, it was just a sort of an eye-opening experience for me that I had to just kind of find my way and find a way to love a college town that is all about the college. When I grew up in LA and you had USC and UCLA and Santa Barbara and UCSD, and it wasn't a college town. It was a, a learning experience for me and something that I eventually fell in love with. I knew in getting to know your story and reading your books that I would be impressed by what you accomplished in the pool. I think your battle actually, and you don't write about it extensively, but it's there. The battle against bulimia is an underrated victory for you and for anyone else that's ever had to go down that path. And, and we won't unpack it all today, Daryl, but for anyone listening right now who might be in a place with an eating disorder, what encouragement might you give them right now, whether it's them or a partner or a spouse or a child that might be wrestling with this challenge? I think the biggest challenge that I had having had it was not telling anyone about it. And I, and I think that's the toughest part of having an eating disorder is admitting to it and going to get help and talking to someone about it. And it took me five years to open up about it to anyone. My mom thought, you know, I had something going on, but didn't really know. And, you know, except for Karen Carpenter, you didn't really hear about eating disorders back in the eighties. And so, and, and even when you heard about her having it and dying from it, you still didn't really understand like what it was all about. And so for me, it was very shameful to have something like that. I didn't want to share it with someone. And I didn't think people wanted to hear about it either. And I didn't want people to look down on me because I had that. And so it took a long time to, to feel okay to, to talk to someone about it. And that would be my advice to someone who's going through it and hasn't told anyone about it or hasn't seeked help about it, that you shouldn't be ashamed. It, it's a real issue and it's a real disease. It can get to the point where it just becomes like an, an addiction. And so that would be my advice for them. And then the other end of it where you have gone to get help is set goals. Mm. You know, it's just like what I did in swimming is set goals and they can be little teeny goals that you can try to accomplish each day or each week that can kind of get you slowly towards where you want to be without having that eating disorder anymore. We could spend 30 minutes in each of the Olympics that you competed in. There are five. So that means you and I are partying for the next two and a half hours, but I don't think <laughs> I have the time with you right now to give us that. <laughs> So we're going to race through 1988. We're going to race into 1992. When you came home, 
I've heard and read that you kind of hid your metals, you put them under the bed and you allowed them to rust and collect dust. Why? I think you would probably see most athletes not walking around with their medals. I mean, it's not like a Stanley Cup where you can take it. And I be would like, be hey. wearing my medal every. Darren, you you must not know me. But I would have my all eight medals on my chest, and eventually, when I left with twelve, I'd have them all. You would know who I was. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I mean, do you see a lot of Olympians walking around with the medals unless they have an appearance or something? Like, you don't really, <laughs> you don't really see that. I think that for me, my psyche and the way I think is okay I did that now what's next I don't want to say dwell because you can't dwell on something like being in the Olympic Games but I don't think about it a lot I am always a forward thinker so so when I finished that those Olympic Games I'm like all right got three you know did it when I was 25 I you know got three Olympics won four medals you know I'm done now what's next and so I got into modeling and I was doing tv and was able to do sports illustrated swimsuit issue and just had some fun things going on didn't really miss the sport at all like swimming is a type of sport where you either miss it tremendously and you keep doing it at that level or you go to masters or you want nothing to do with it and i was really at that mind frame that i really don't want anything to do with swimming so that's why you didn't see me around for like seven years doing anything swimming wise so let me credit credit you not only for what you've done in the pool and outside of the pool but for your love of truly extraordinary music we're going to celebrate now the famous greatest band called Meatloaf. People, Meatloaf. Oh, who, who yeah. knew that Dara loved Meatloaf, but she apparently does. Not just the food, but the band. I love Meatloaf too. I think they're awesome. You and your boyfriend at the time were going to a Meatloaf concert, which I totally respect you for. And you're talking with some friends about swimming. And he sees something in your eyes that I don't think you saw in your own eyes or in your own heart about swimming. This is years after you'd retired. You hung up the suit. It had dried completely. You'd not re-entered the pool. What is it that your boyfriend at the time saw before the meatloaf concert in your eyes regarding your conversation around swimming? What happened was it was a little, about a year before trials. And that's when the network start putting the little logos, Olympic logos on and people start getting curious about who's doing what. And so when we were at dinner, we just started talking about it and, and like one thing led to another and he's like, well, so who do you think is going to do well? I'm like, I don't really even know who's swimming now. Like I haven't been to a pool. I haven't swum in a, in a practice or gone to a meet. I have no idea. And so then once that happened, they kind of, he kind of giggled and he's like, well, he goes, you know, have you ever thought of making a comeback? I'm like 30, I'd be 33 at the Olympic games. There's no way I was 32 at the time. And um, then once that thought was in my head, I kind of just like, started having dreams about it. And I started getting competitive with people if I went for a run in Central Park because I was living in New York. And, you know, it was just like, it, it just got in my head. And once it was in my head, it was like, it just snowballed. Within, I would want to say two to three weeks that that thought was in my head. I had already called a coach, talked to the coach out in Stanford, packed my stuff, got, you know, told my agent, I'm not working anymore. I'm going out to train. And that was that. For most of us who are not Olympic athletes or super well-read in that sport or really any sport, 33 sounds pretty young. And yet I read earlier that when you were 25 in your third Olympics, that everyone referred to you not as auntie or mom, but as grandma. So eight years before this one, they're already referring to you as the old lady in the pool. And here it is now, eight years later, you have not been training. You have not been getting ready for this. How difficult would it be for anybody or for you to get ready for, uh, for this Olympic? Well, I think one of the things that worked to my advantage is I love to work out. So in those seven years that I didn't put my foot in a pool. You know, I was working out all the time. You know, swimming is a sport where you have to kind of keep up the cardiovascular 
aspect of it because it's, it's nothing similar to running or any other sport. It's a difficult sport, but I was working out all the time. When I made my comeback, you know, there's such thing as muscle memory and I definitely had muscle memory. And the fact that I was working out all the time up to that point for seven years and the fact that my coach really went about it so logically with, okay, you're not doing anything the first three months. that's going to get your heart rate over 120. Then we're going to ease into it. And he really just like methodically thought out how this was going to happen and how my comeback was going to happen. And um, it, it all kind of just fell into place. And I, I, I was really lucky to have, you know, Richard Quick as my coach and, and really um, knowing what would be best for me. So you have another wildly successful Olympics and you hang up the suit for the final time. I think everybody feels this time. And then eight years later, you take it off the rack and you put the doggone thing back on again. And yet your, your life had profoundly changed in the eight years between those. You're, you're, uh, you wrote beautifully about how in 2006, you gained a daughter and you lost your father. Would you talk yes. about those two experiences and how, they, how they've shaped you? So I had wanted a child my whole life and I finally, you know, got pregnant and was able to have her when I turned 39. So I was definitely like an older mother. It's kind of a long story, but when I was got pregnant with her, I started swimming just for fun. And one thing led to another after I had her, I swam in a meet three weeks after having her and, you know, swam okay. And then ended up swimming a couple months later in another master's swim meet and qualified my time qualified for Olympic trials and all these peers were coming up to me and said oh you know you need to go to the Olympic games and represent the middle-aged people and and when I made my decision my dad was really really sick and he always wanted me he's very like old school wanted me at home having you know I could still work but have my daughter and you know just you know be a mom and not have to always be on the go. And so I hadn't had the, got the nerve up. Plus he was so sick. I hadn't gotten the nerve up to tell him yet. And so he had passed before I can tell him that I was, you know, going to train for another Olympic games, but it's funny how you can always, when something like that happens, you know, become very emotional for a while, but then you take those emotions and then you think about the happy times you had with your, with your dad. And then you start feeling like they're with you. And I really felt like he was with me as I was going through this whole process and going for another Olympics and knowing that like, almost like he saw I was able to balance being a good mom and, you know, doing what I love to do and still earning a living and providing for my daughter. And, you know, it was just, it was a lot, but I, I felt like he was there through that process, even though he wasn't physically there. You know, a lot of our listeners are moms or dads or aunties or uncles, or they're taking care of kids at home. You're getting ready for the Olympics in your late 30s, now early 40s. How difficult was it for you to balance being a mama and being an Olympic level athlete? I didn't know how I was going to do it because I'd never been a mom before. So this was like new to me. And I remember my daughter was my mom's 20th grandchild and she came to the hospital. I had my daughter like, all right, have fun. Good luck. You know, not like my sister who had the first one of the first children she was there the whole time and helping you know and so I was like oh my gosh like deer in headlights what am I going to do now you know I, I didn't really know how I was going to do that but I really looked to working parents as my inspiration because it's like how do women and men go to work and they leave their kids and then they come back and that doesn't make them a bad parent that makes them like someone who can balance and find balance in their life and you you have to be happy and find something that's good for you to do to be able to be the best version for your child. That's what I learned, I think, over the years. When we're watching the Olympics live, I think sometimes we feel it's like almost produced. 
you know, they go from, from pool to pool or whatever it might be. I was amazed to read in your book that as you're receiving your silver medal and there's tears coming down your eyes as you finish the, the 50, that you have four minutes once the song is finished playing to then race to the pool to get back in and race again. Is, is that, that pretty factual? Yeah, so what happened was, is my 50 freestyle was from the, when the race either started or ended, which, which is only 24 seconds anyway, right. um, to when I had to get back in the ready room and march out with the US team for the final relay, which I was anchoring, I had 30 minutes. And in those 30 minutes, I had to get out, congratulate everyone, go do an interview, which they were only allowed one question, and then race to the warm down pool, try to warm down, go back to the medal ceremony, put on my medal ceremony sweats with my, my race suit underneath that's soaking wet. And then basically give the medal. I think it was to, I don't know if it was one of the team managers or something or my coach and then run into, to the ready room and put my suit, like, cause it was halfway off, put it on because it's so tight. You don't want it to tire your shoulders and then walk out like nothing's happened and get ready to anchor, you know, a relay. So it, it was tough. And I think that I had a great team around me sort of helping me with that with my coach that was there and the team managers and everyone just kind of had everything sort of coordinated so I would just like they'd take me each place and I had it sort of all done but it wasn't easy in 30 minutes but I was able to do it and there have been other athletes who have had much shorter turnarounds in their events like a Michael Phelps or Katie Ledecky where they're swimming another full event so it's just something that I wasn't used to doing well you did it well we <laughs> came home with three silver medals from that Olympics, the 2008, your final so far. I'm not saying that you can't make yet another comeback, but that, that is your final so far. I'm curious though, Thanks. as you look back at your five Olympics and these 12 medals and all of these races, how did the experience within the Olympics change from that first 17 year old girl kind of flying around like a little butterfly, getting in with Ronald Reagan to this 41 year old mama who has recently buried her father and all the experiences that have shaped your life subsequently. How did the experience of being part of the Olympics change? Everything was different. Even the, the villages were different. They were more, I guess, modernized over the years. The way they ran the Olympics was, was different. It was more efficient over the years. Um, the equipment changed in swimming. The pools changed a little bit in swimming. The stroke changed in swimming. Um, you know, I think I was a much more appreciative at 41 for all the workers were, that were there working and me going up and thanking them when in 84, I just would walk by them, you know, not even really realizing these people were volunteering their time to be there and make these Olympics run smoothly. So I think I was just much more appreciative at 41 than I was at 17. Is there a moment, you know, one moment in time is a song they frequently played events like this. Is there that one moment in time that you look back on and you're like, gosh, John, if I could just sum up in all of these experiences in one moment, this was the highlight. Do you have that highlight for you? I really don't because I was at such different stages in my life when I went to each Olympic Games and each race was just so different. And there was some races that were good, some were bad, some were great, some were horrible. You know, it's just that's the way it is in, in being in a sport for so long. But for me personally, when people say, oh, like, what was your proudest moment or your favorite you know, race or whatever. It really now, if you ask me this now, if you'd asked me this when I was like 21, it probably would have been a much different answer. But I think it's just what I learned over the years to make me the best I can be. And, and the path that took me on this journey to, to be in, at a level that, that not a lot of people get to be at and being so appreciative of 
all the people that put in the hard work over the years, whether it's coaches, parents, family, you know, workers at meets, like whatever it is, like, it's just, it's so rewarding the path that got me there. And that's what I'm most proud of more than any medal that I won. One thing I noticed very clearly in how you speak and how you give commencement addresses and in your interviews and now in your books, you're quick to turn the attention to others. I mean, you're the 41 year old up at six in the morning in the pool. You're the one getting stretched. You're the one doing the weights. You're the one bench pressing 210 pounds. I don't even want to talk about that right now. You're, you're the one doing the work, but you're quick to say, and it would have never happened without this coach and that trainer and that physical therapist and that doctor and, and everybody else who's been part of the journey for it. And I think that's really admirable. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, and I think, again, like being older and especially going for 2008 and being 41 years old, you know, I put a team together that that really, I mean, it's so cliche to say there's no I in team, but there really isn't. And these people each had their own things they had to do, whether it was my strength coach, like being so nitpicky about what I have to do. And even at the Olympic games, when I go to the gym, like this is what I need to do. And my stretching trainers working on my coach, giving me the workouts, like it's very particular. And, and I really feel like, no, I couldn't have made the Olympic games if it wasn't for these people. Yeah. I was the one standing up on the block swimming, but it really was throughout the years, a team effort. So you really have to be able to give kudos to those around you who helped you. And, and I will always be forever grateful to those people. Dara, we wrap up every one of our interviews with just a few questions that tether all of our guests together. They are called the Live Inspired Seven. They're rapid fire questions. So here we go. We're going we're gonna to give you one more 50 to the finish line. First okay. What, what is the best, most impactful or inspirational book you've ever read? It's not really a book. It's a quote. And I love looking at quotes. Eleanor Roosevelt said, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. I remember seeing that quote in 2000 and I always lived by that. Mm. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl in Southern California that you wish uh, you exhibited as brilliantly today? I think it's um, treating everyone equal. My parents were always good about that. And, you know, I, I just believe that everyone's the same and they, no one should feel better than someone else. If your home caught fire and all your loved ones and pets are out of the house safe and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what's the one thing you come racing back out with? Probably an, a photo album or something that, you know, with family, um, you know, family is the most important thing in your life. And I'd probably go in and I've thought about that too. I don't know what you bring that up, but I think everyone thinks about that. You see a fire on TV or something happens like, well, what would I go get? Mm -hmm. And if I knew everyone was safe, I'd probably go out and get some something that represents my family. Awesome. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who do you want to be hanging out with? I would have to say Jesse Owens. Wow. You know, he, he was an incredible athlete and had to overcome so much and, you know, competing in, in the Olympics in, in Germany. I just, I would love to know what went through his mind having to deal with such adversity like that. Mm. What's the best adversity that Eleanor Roosevelt, your parents, Jesse Owens, or anybody else ever gave you? It's the same thing as answer number one is to just treat everyone equal, you know, and I know that sounds repetitive, but especially with what's going on in the world today, I just think it's very important to understand that, that we're all created equal. Right on. And it, it sounds almost trite and uh, like a cheap bumper sticker until you actually try to live it out in your own life. Mm -hmm. 
And then you recognize how actually incredibly difficult it is and how needed it is right now. Two questions left. We're almost to the finish line. Just a couple strokes left. What advice would you give your 20 year old self? To not worry about what other people think of you. And I think that's one of the problems with my eating disorder that I had in my twenties was that um, not only did I want to make weight and not have to do extra, extra practices, I was always worried about how I looked and what people would think of me. And I think that has, is something that I wish I could change when I was younger. But I also, on the, on the other hand, you know, when people say you have any regrets or you wish you can change something, you know, I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't gone through that. So you got to look at it that, that way too. Perfect. Final question is, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Deratoris. How would you like your one sentence to read? Actually, there's two sentences. One is what I think of my life, which is always on the go. And the other sentence would be what other people think is probably just longevity in, in a sport. You certainly have been on the go. You certainly did experience <laughs> longevity. You certainly worked hard for it. And I love the fact that you deflect the attention to those who helped you achieve the ultimate success. So Dara, this has been a pleasure. I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast. Well, thank you so much. And it's so, so wonderful to meet you. And I appreciate and I'm honored to be on your podcast. You're awesome. Well, my friends, I want to thank you for joining us on the Live Inspired podcast today with Dara Torres. There were lots of takeaways I think we could apply not only in the pool, but beyond the ideas around dedication, around showing up, around creativity, around doing the difficult work day after day after day. The idea of ignoring impossible gosh, don't we need this right now in our personal walk, in our professional journey, as a community, as a nation, and as nations. We need leaders to step forward boldly and remind us that just because it has not been done yet doesn't mean it can't be done going forward. Dara is a whisper of that reminder for all of us. But for me, the most meaningful thing that I heard that really just kind of rocked me was this idea that th- this beautiful, successful lady with medals and a career of success inwardly felt broken. She inwardly felt like she wasn't enough. She inwardly felt like she did not fit in. She wasn't the right size. She didn't quite equate to what it looked like for others for her to become successful. And it led her down what ultimately was a very dangerous path of bulimia. And yet, through the help of her team, through the help of a counselor, through the help of her family, and by stepping into this thing, recognizing she could not do it by herself, she was able to not only swim again at a high level, but overcome this very difficult diagnosis, bulimia. My friends, I don't know what you're facing today, whether it's professionally or spiritually, personally, relationally, in some facet of your life. But I want you to recognize that you are not alone. You are loved. You do indeed have royal blood coursing through your veins. The foundation is firm. And the best days indeed remain ahead of you. So I hope Dara today was an encouragement to you to keep swimming forward. Keep swimming forward. I want to thank you for tuning into this episode. I want to thank you, many of you, for commenting, for sharing, for subscribing, and for being part of our Live Inspired community. We're grateful for you. So for this time. And until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day, family. Live inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley. 
with a world-class culture focused on people and customer-centric approach. We're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at KeeleyCompanies.com.